all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. So I am so excited today because I have Lear Keith on the line and we're going to be talking about the top stories and news and events of 2019 going into 2020. Welcome, Lear, to WLRN's program. Well, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, Thistle. So as we move into 2020, a lot happened in 2019. Which stories stand out for you when thinking about feminism and women's news? So I want to touch on a few things that are global first and then maybe talk about a few things that I know a little bit more about because they're in the United States or in English-speaking countries. But first up is Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, one of the most horrifying places on the planet to be a woman. Um, they, The women there have managed to get the, uh, the laws relaxed about male guardianship because right now if you're a woman in Saudi Arabia – and you literally can't leave the house without male permission. You can't travel anywhere. It's totally horrifying levels of patriarchal control of women. And over the, you know, women fight this. Like there's, you're not going to find patriarchy without finding women fighting back. It's just a question of whether we hear about it and whether historians make a note of it. So women have been fighting really hard. They've been pushing back really hard over the last few years. And they've managed to get the male guardianship repealed on travel. So women are now allowed to travel on their own. And then the big thing was women being able to drive. And that really kicked off a few years ago as well. Um, and they now have managed to get it so that women can drive, um, which is huge. The problem is that some of the women who did the actual campaigning about it and did essentially civil disobedience were all arrested and they are still in jail. And it's pretty horrifying to hear about what's happening to them. And the most well-known one is a woman whose name I'm probably going to mispronounce, but Lujane al Hathlal. Uh, she's 30 years old. She was one of the main campaigners against male guardianship and the driving ban. She was arrested in May of 2018 with another a bunch of other feminist activists. They are now being tortured in prison. Um, oh. That's quite clear. And the Trump administration has done literally nothing. Um, Jared Kushner himself claims to be a personal friend of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And they just, they say nothing. They say nothing about this. And this is a quote from her sister. Um, she said she'd been held in solitary confinement, beaten, waterboarded, given electric shocks, sexually harassed and threatened with rape and murder. Her sister's now living in Belgium. And she wrote a, a New York Times op-ed about her sister's case. And the last time her parents were allowed in to visit her, and there were visible bruises on her body. So it's horrible. And I mean, this woman is so brave. She was told they would let her out of jail, out of prison, if she promised that she would not, that she would, uh, you know, say that she had not been tortured. So if she denied the torture and pretended it was all fine, they would go ahead and let her out. And she said no, that she wasn't going to lie for the Saudi, uh, the royal house of Saud. So wow. she is still in prison being tortured because she refuses to say this didn't happen to me. This is an incredibly brave woman, and we need to put any kind of pressure that we have on our government to do something about this case and the other women who are, these are our, these are our comrades, our sisters, and their cases are almost completely unknown here. So I, you just feel that so keenly, like what they are suffering right now for the most basic things that we take for granted, right? This is just incredibly brave women. 
they inspire us and it's also just horrifying what they're going through so saudi arabia um japan uh, pretty cool there's a new movement there that started um most women are required to wear high heels to professional jobs like it's a legal requirement um and they started a movement that's called kutu which is kind of a play on me too um and it's a little bit of a pun be i don't speak japanese so i'm probably going to slaughter this but kutsu means shoe and kutsu means pain so there's a nice little pun in there about shoes and pain and me too um so well named women in japan you've done a good thing and they have a viral this petition's gone absolutely viral to try to stop the government from requiring women to torture themselves to go to work um and that's been they're 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 doing good things there to try to stop that and more power to them Um I myself realized as a young child that high heels were basically a torture implement and I hate the things. I don't I it's so disturbing to me to see women wear them which of course you see everywhere and I just personally I hate it and I've seen the photographs of women in China the foot binding x-rays that you can still see. Um there are photographs of the last women whose feet were bound and you can see what their feet actually look like. And it's just how do you not want to vomit looking at those photographs? So just considering the life of pain, and it's not that different wearing high heels. It completely destroys your bones, not just in your feet, but you know, in your pelvis, in your knees, in your spine. Women have lifelong pro- problems after wearing these shoes for you know even a few years, and there's just no reason for it except oh the usual you know male sadism and patriarchy. So anyway, good on you women in Japan. Um, in Chile, um, that incredible anti-rape anthem happened. and that went viral and it it was it translates the rapist in your path and the words are incredible if you want to look it up if you haven't heard about it and women sang the song and they danced in the streets and then women started doing it everywhere so on youtube you can see women like all over the world singing this great song against rape and some of the words were and it's not my fault nor where i was nor what i wore and they are very clear about naming the rapist as the problem and that he's in the government and he's the president and he's everybody and you know we're not going to take it. So that was really cool too to watch. I just love those little explosions of women's rage, you know, that happen everywhere. <laughs> um and then um in Africa there were some good things. Um in Nigeria and Ghana there's a huge scandal that was called sex for grades. Um and in the United States, you know, we have laws about sexual harassment that, you know, essentially we owe to Catherine McKinnon, but it's not legal here to do this. And it is still legal in other places in the world. for male professors to demand sexual favors uh from women and girls in order to get grades um and they were doing that in the universities and so a very brave young woman named Kiki Mordi who is a survivor herself of this kind of abuse um she made a documentary she got the BBC to back her and the so the story broke with her documentary where a, a lot of other very brave women came forward and talked about you know what this is like and how it destroyed them and you know the kind of terrible decisions they had to make because there's no legal protection so um all of that of course has made change happen pretty quickly so there's now policies in place in universities you know they've gotten on the ball uh various professors were put on um I don't know if any of them were fired but they were certainly put on leave for a while so hopefully we start to see better things for women in Nigeria and Ghana both um South Africa um another one of these like explosions and they're calling their movement I am I next because the femicide there is so bad that even the president of South Africa was forced to admit that it is quote like a war um it's every 3 hours a woman is murdered in South Africa it's one of the the hardest places to be a woman so women it was a, an incredibly hideous case a 19-year-old woman 
um, whose name is, I'm going to, again, I'm not going to get this right, but Yuyinin Merwetiana. See, I get my news mostly from reading, so I don't ever hear these things pronounced, so I'm sorry that I have mispronounced her name, but it's horrible. She was 19 years old, and it's one of those just stomach-churning cases. I won't go into the details. You can read about it if you want to look up the news on it, but after that case, you know, was you know, they sort of broke the news that women everywhere just rose up across the country because it was so horrible. And they flooded the streets and they took it to Parliament. And they're trying really hard to get something to change because it just keeps getting worse in South Africa. And, you know, more power to them. I wish them all the best in trying to make something shift. Because, again, that's one of those really hard places to be a woman on the planet. Um, what else have I got? Um, a couple of things in Europe that were pretty fun. Finland. Uh, uh, elected and pretty much an, an entirely female <laughs> government um, and Finland is Yay, one of those Finland. places I know that's still like it's one of the best places in the world to be a woman so they've managed it they have really great um, maternity leave policies there and family support policies which really make such a difference in women's lives it's having children um, you know which is obviously one of the joys of people just People love children or they wouldn't do it, right? So clearly that's something a lot of people want to do and, you know, feel feel very drawn toward. Um, but it's hard. It's really hard on women, especially. You know, we are the primary caretakers generally, and uh, our, our careers suffer for that. And that means, you know, we're lifelong um, more vulnerable to poverty. And Finland is one of the countries that has really tried to make that not be true so that women can have children and not be penalized for it. And it's one of the highest countries in the world for men taking off um, time to to be with their families and um, you know, but there's still a really big pay gap in Finland. It's not as bad as other places. And you know, as usual, um, the murder and rape rate it's like nothing seems to budget. So they still have those problems there. Um, and so hopefully, with more women in government, and especially in high-ranking government positions, they can really take a look at um, you know the worst crimes that that men commit against us. So that was Finland. And I mean, how could we not mention Greta Thunberg in Sweden and just incredible activism from a teenager and what she's doing to stop climate change. So I all hats off to Greta and she gets so much crap. I mean, it's so obvious the misogyny when you look at what's happened to just, you know, a teenage girl who wants to do something good and the kind of crap that falls down on her head is really insane. So so that's kind of around the world, things that I remember from the year. Um now I'm going to turn a little bit toward the United States and England and Canada. Um, those are countries that are easier for me because I speak English and I only speak English. And so those are where my connections are, are best. Um, let's start with the United Kingdom. So the thing that just happened, I don't, you probably couldn't have missed this one, but J.K. Rowling came out <laughs> as, <laughs> I don't even, as a turf. I mean, here we are. So, she tweeted that, you know, you can wear what you want, you can live the life you want, you know, more power to you, whoever you are, but biology is real and women shouldn't lose their jobs for saying so. And of course, was raked over the coals for days on Twitter. And all you have to do is look at the things that men are allowed to say to women on Twitter and nobody stops them. The kinds right. of names she was called and nobody suspends their accounts. They can call her every horrifying insult, every kind of violent threat. It doesn't matter. Twitter never suspends them. So this <laughs> just got thousands and thousands of comments. Now also are thousands of comments in support of her. So people feel encouraged, you know, that somebody famous who they admire 
is able to stand there and take the fire, that does bring out other people's courage. So a lot of women for the first time were able to say, yes, biology is real and I shouldn't have to lose my job for saying so. Um, the woman that she was supporting is named Maya Forstadter. And Maya lost her job. She worked at a think tank, a progressive think tank, and um, was she had some some publicly she stated some public things on Twitter and I think on her Facebook page um, about you know this whole concept of quote gender identity and what she thought about it and that you know women and girls were being hurt by this. So I mean some fairly mild statements about it and it didn't matter. She lost her job for saying it. And then she took it to not quite court, but it's a tribunal. It's like an employment tribunal. And I really encourage everybody to read the actual words of the judge in charge of this because it's insanity. Uh, what he said was that this is a belief, not a fact, but a belief that Maya has a belief that mammals can't change sex, that men cannot become women, and that this belief um, is not protected as speech or as a belief. And in fact, it's, you know, a terrible thing for human rights that she has this belief and she did, in fact, deserve to lose her job. Um, it's not a belief. I mean, it's just a fact. Like, mammals cannot change sex. That's all she said is that men cannot become women. And that is simply true. Um, and so she lost her case. And I think, you know, a lot of people were, are, are increasingly understanding how bad the situation is with the transgender assault on women mm -hmm. and girls. And this was one so, that poked maybe it up to more the top. People, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but maybe more people in 2020 because of the action that J.K. Rowling took are going to peak trans. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I mean, <laughs> we needed somebody like J.K. Rowling to come out and just be firm and clear. And she did it. And she is holding her ground. She has not caved in. Other famous people come out about this and then they can't take the firestorm that ensues and they back up or they go quiet. And she has not. She's been great. So, you know, I mean, she's... Has she, she made any more public statements, though, since the famous tweet that came out sometime in December? And you and I are talking on December 28th. Has she... And, and this program is going to air on January 2nd. So um, I'm just wondering if she's said anything since her famous tweet came out. That's a really good question, and I meant to try to do a little research yesterday and got caught up in something just a sort of emergency where I was trying to help a teenage girl and, like, you know, one of those stories that needs attention. So I was not able to do enough research for our interview today, and I'm sorry about that. I don't know whether anything in the last 48 hours has happened with J.K. Rowling, and um, I intend to look it up today because I really want to know where things stand. I think if right. she had caved, we certainly would have heard about it. So I think that she is still at this point holding firm. I imagine she's just not replying to any of them, but it all stands there. And if any of your friends, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this is more or less aligned with radical feminism. But if any of you've got friends or family who don't understand this, have them take a look at the, the Twitter thread underneath her original tweet. Because it is just vile comment after vile comment for simply stating the biological right. reality. That, right. that human beings cannot change sex. And between now and when we air this program, I'll also do a little research and, and see, um, and we'll certainly link to any breaking news uh, around that story. Good. So a couple other things that are, a few other things that are happening in England, which I think are um, incredibly hopeful about this. Um, there's a number of other legal cases now that are going forward. So one is a woman named Victoria Edwards, 
who was uh, an out lesbian. She's a mother of a, a son. Um, she has an anonymous teacher and an anonymous 12-year-old girl with her, and they are trying to sue the school system in England to remove this trans inclusion toolkit. That toolkit compels schools to let boys into girls' bathrooms, girls' change rooms, overnight trips, sleep with girls, and not tell anybody's parents about it. And this just blows past every, you know, every level of common decency about what girls and women deserve, about our safety, and certainly about parental involvement in their children. And this woman has just had enough. So she is suing them about this. Um, and I'm just going to read you a quote from the anonymous 12-year-old girl that is one of her on her side in this lawsuit. She says, I hated primary school physical education because the boys didn't care and would run around in their underwear and watch the girls change. All the girls ended up getting changed in the toilets, which was disgusting. Now my body is changing and I'm really self-conscious and it's awkward even in front of girls. I love sports, but if boys came in and expected to be treated the same as girls, I wouldn't get changed until they had gone. Also, I'm a teeny tiny girl and I'm not very good at ball sports, but I do well at judo and karate and I do practice with boys. Even though my technique is good, I know that many 11-year-old boys can beat me on strength. If I did a competition against a trans, quote, trans girl of my grade, I'd have no hope and they would break me. So, I mean, literally, she could get her bones broken. She could have a skull fracture. Like, at that age, you know, boys are starting to take on full male, male skeletons, and their bones are heavier and denser. And this is one of the problems with why we have separate male and female sports. So here's this 12-year-old explaining exactly what's wrong. And where are the adults? Like, right. I, it's just beyond me. Like, this is just common sense. Why should this girl have to change in front of boys? And why should she be forced in order for her to keep competing, why should she be forced to risk her physical safety um, and, and, and incur, you know, potentially really dangerous injury? So anyway, they're suing, which is great. Um, uh, teachers can also lose their jobs for, for refusing to participate in this. So it's, you know, it's pretty serious stuff. Um, and then there's another legal case. So uh, there's a psychiatric nurse named Sue Evans who worked at the Tavistock Clinic, which is the premier gender identity clinic in England. Um, and there's been tremendous pressure on staff um, to use this affirmation model so that, you know, within three or four appointments, young children are put on hormone blockers and then wrong sex hormones. And a whole bunch of nurses and doctors now have come forward as whistleblowers to talk about what's going on there, that this is just wrong, that these children are being permanently damaged. Um, and, um, you know, she's finally just going to sue because somebody has to stop this. Um, and I have a really great quote here from... Um, I think an endocrinologist who says there's so many unanswered questions um, about the reversibility, the serious adverse health effects, long-term effects on mental health, neurological effects on cognitive functioning, effect on bone density, circulatory system, sexual functioning in adulthood. We cannot stand by and watch young people be part of an experimental medical treatment. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the, the kind of the gist of her lawsuit. There's another challenge uh, from a woman named Rachel Ara, who's either a lesbian or bisexual. I'm not sure, but she's an internationally acclaimed artist. She was set up to do a lecture at a college in the UK, a university. And of course, she was deplatformed. And it's all because they have one of those policies. Um, and so she's suing them to say that the critical discussion of sex and women's oppression is crucial and should be protected. And she never should have been deplatformed. Um, and another, there's two other really great cases coming up. Julia Long, who's a personal friend of mine, was refused service at the National Theater in London because she was wearing a T-shirt that said, lesbian, a woman who loves other women. And for that reason, they were removed from the cafe. 
for simply wearing that T-shirt. And I mm-hmm. want everybody to understand how terrifying this is that in you know the year 2019, like we are now at a, in a place where women cannot wear a shirt that just says lesbian on it um, without being removed from from the public eye, like legally removed. Um, you know, like the yeah. more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. And it's just how did how did this get to be so bad where we can't even mm-hmm. just say lesbian anymore? And then finally, there's a female prisoner in a uh, she's anonymous at this point, but she's taking the UK government to court because they are letting men into women's prisons. And that happened to her. And it's unsafe and it's terrifying. And we know, well, I don't know if all your listeners heard about there was a case of a man named Karen White, who was a sexual predator, who was on his own say so put into a women's prison because he said he was a woman and then he went ahead and sexually assaulted women um, and then he was removed. So there's now more victims chalked up to Karen White. So this is what they're doing. And gosh, who could have predicted that men (laughs) would sexually assault women in a prison? Like whoever could have predicted that they were going to do that. So that that's all that's all what's happening in England. So a lot of good fight back. I got to say a lot of good fight back. Canada. your friend and mine, Megan Murphy, has continued to be our Joan of Arc, and she had some incredibly difficult experiences this year. She spoke in Vancouver at the Public Library and at Toronto at the Public Library, and there was just massive meltdowns uh, amongst the social justice warriors. In both cases, there were fairly horrifying amounts of protesters outside screaming at people, screaming horrible things at people. The police were at least able to keep everybody physically safe, but, I mean, that's facing down the, the howling mob and she gave incredible talks. They're online. You can see them. Nobody here is saying anything hateful except that women have rights and mammals cannot change sex. So that's that's about the sign. She's very clear and she's very wonderful. And everybody should. And, you know, just to, to interrupt for a second, that's also a story to follow into 2020 because Megan, Megan, or Megan Murphy is going to be speaking at an event on February 1st at a mm-hmm. public library. That's right. In Seattle, along yes. with Saba Malik and mm-hmm. um, Kara Dansky. Yes. So in that that's called fighting the new misogyny, which is definitely something to look for in 2020. So I hope our listeners follow that story. And I am the moderator of that panel. So I'm extremely excited. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be a great time. They're already, of course, gearing up to protest us and they've already got 1300 people saying they're going to come and, you know, scream at us oh, outside geez. the building. I know. I mean, it's going to be a circus, but the thing is at this point, the media blackout is so severe that it's kind of win-win. You know, they're going to come and behave badly. There's no way around it. It's what they do. So the whole world gets to see a group of horrifying men scream disgusting things at a group of very peaceful, reasonable women who are saying what everybody knows is true. Mammals cannot change sex. Men are men. Women are women. Um, and women, you know, deserve rights. You are listening to WLRN. Who would have thunk 10 years ago that this would be where we're at? You know, I know it's completely insane. So the other thing that happened in Canada this year was the lovely case of Jonathan Yaniv. So this is a man who lives in Vancouver. He claims to be a woman um, and he uh, is clearly a litigious pest. He has a long history of taking people to court for rather ridiculous things. And he went after, as far as we know, at least 12 different women who offered, I don't know what to call it, a Brazilian bikini wax 
you know, services. Yeah, I believe that's just the sort term. of intimate, intimate waxing. Uh, but on women, I mean, just to be really blunt, women's tissues are very different than male tissue. Um, the skin on a vulva, you know, around your vagina um, is very different skin than the skin on a man's scrotum. And apparently it takes very different training to be able to do it, quote, safely on a man versus a woman. Um, I'm just going to say I, I don't like normalizing any of these practices. I think they're horrible and they're fairly torturous and pretty disturbing that nobody's allowed to have pubic hair at this point. But that aside, he claimed that he was a woman and therefore women women practitioners of this you know, particular practice should treat him, that they should willingly take a man into their homes. This is all most of these businesses are, you know, run out of their homes. These are oh entirely they were women who were immigrants, um, mostly from Asia. So they don't have a lot of other choices. They've got small children. You know, they've managed to find a small business that can help support them working out of their homes when their kids are at school. Like, you know, good on them for at least trying, you know, to, to make a stable life for themselves in a new country. I get how hard that is as a language barrier. Um, and he went after these women one by one by one. He didn't go to anyone who was, you know, a white Canadian. He went after immigrant women and demanded these intimate services, which they weren't trained for and certainly weren't comfortable providing. So he took them to court. He took them to this tribunal. This was a human rights tribunal in Vancouver. And the human rights tribunal said, yes, you have a case enough that we will listen to you, which I think is completely insane. But that's how bad things are. So he was able to present his case. And um, a very brave woman went to all, I think it was four days of that tribunal and recorded it surreptitiously on her phone, which is not legal, but she did it anyway, because the, the press was not covering it. Nobody will cover these stories. It was up to all of us kind of on the down. WLRN covers these stories. Yes. But, well, good yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like the major media just won't talk about it. So this stuff has to spread kind of virally, yeah. you know, on the down low, she was able to get all that testimony up online. So you can listen to how crazy this whole thing was. They're talking about her penis and her scrotum. These yeah. are not words go together. As, it's a I, total as I've heard Amy Goodman on Democracy <gasps> yes. Now, I've heard Oprah her refer to a man and her yes. penis it's in her reporting. I know. I know. <laughs> I've stopped listening. To, I gave up on her a long time ago. I couldn't, I couldn't bear the gaslighting. It's too insane. So anyway, all the footage is there, and I really encourage people to listen. If you don't believe us about how bad this is, listen to this footage, because this man is clearly mentally ill. Okay. I mean, he's a horror. And I'm everybody gonna ask you, Lear, and, and I can, you know, edit this out if you don't feel obliged to do this, but can you send us links to all of these top yes, stories and absolutely. I will add them and include them in our write-up. Thank you. That would be absolutely. great for women who want to study these stories a little bit more closely. Yeah. So, so really, that brings us, that brings us to the United States, right? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, yes. Can you go. tell us what, what, what your take is on the top sto news stories for the U S yeah. I mean, some good, some bad. Um, the bad of course is, you know, the endless fight to keep abortion rights. So we've had a slew of these quote heartbeat bills, um, mostly across the deep South that would just completely ban abortion. So women are always fighting this just forever. Like it never seems to end. The most horrifying one was the one in Ohio, which was the ectopic pregnancy one. Um, the, the bill demanded that the little zygote be uh, removed from the fallopian tubes and then reimplanted in the uterus. That is not possible. Okay, I just want everybody to understand they are demanding a medical procedure that does not exist and is not possible. 
And if you don't do it, you are going to be accused of fetal murder. It's complete insanity. And finally, enough doctors and enough, you know, advocates called these guys on, you know, onto the carpet. And the guy who was the sponsor of the bill was like, well, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Why are you writing legislation about women's health care if you don't even understand the basics? I mean, it's like it's most women, you know, who are of reproductive age have either been through this or know somebody who's been through it in their families. Anybody could have told you what an ectopic pregnancy is and how dangerous it is for women. I think one in 10 maternal deaths is due to an ectopic pregnancy. This isn't a joke. Women die from this. You have to treat it immediately, which means you have to remove it. And it's sad for women who want to have a baby. I'm sure they mourn. Like, that's got to be a sad thing that you didn't get to have this baby that you wanted. And on top of it all, you're now going to be called a murderer for something that's mm-hmm. completely not your fault. And, and that there's, there's no cure for this. Like, the, the only thing you can do is remove it and hope for the best. Like, women can get thrown into medical menopause from this because your whole yeah. reproductive system can shut down. Like, that can be the end of your reproductive life. And that's, like, really serious in a woman's life if she wants to be a mother. This isn't a joke. Like, it just makes me so angry how little care they have for women, how little knowledge. If they cared the tiniest bit about women, they would understand. They would, mm-hmm. they would like, have accumulated enough basic facts that they could at least make some kind of decision. And they don't care enough to even, no, we're just, you know, we're just incubators. We're just vessels. Like, well, what's the difference? It's like replanting a, you know, a house plant or, a, you know, like a petunia or something. It's not. That's not how mammalian biology works. Right. Like always, always the so, materialists. Yeah. Right. Teeth. Always, always. How dare I just like in, insist in, on in, biological facts. Right. Yes. Always rooted in biological facts. So, so that just that I'm, just put it. We had all our hair was just on fire when that kind of unfolded in Ohio. So at least that's over. They've kind of withdrawn that because they've realized it's not possible. Well, we don't we don't have that much more time. Could OK, you wrap sorry. It up? Uh, what are some <laughs> other stories from the from the U.S. that have really that you've taken note of? Sure. Well, there was women's soccer, Megan Rapino. I mean, she's just a goddess, right? And they managed to get this whole issue of women's equal pay up, you know, before the, the public and have tried to do things about it. And I think, you know, half the teenage girls in America have a crush on her and now they've got a role model and she's fucking fantastic. So I love her. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein was finally arrested and charged and then he took himself out. So whatever, you know, he's gone. Uh, but at least finally something was done. So I'm still hoping some of those victims can get some justice because a whole bunch of other really powerful men, their names are now have been released in those court documents. So maybe there'll be some justice finally for these teenage girls who were essentially pimped out. So yay for that. Let's let's see something happen. Um, the other stuff I want to talk about in the United States is we've got the case now before the Supreme Court that's the case that's going to be about the transgender versus feminism debate. It's not the case we would have chosen, but it's there now. We have the Wolf Wolf has filed a brief. That's my group. That's the radical feminist group. Anybody can read our brief. It's online. And we are arguing, you know, just the basic stuff from a feminist perspective that women deserve rights, that we exist as a class, that putting men in with women is dangerous to women and that you know, these are kind of insane claims that's being made by the other side. Now, the man, um, Amy Harris or Amy Stevens, is claiming that um, he is a woman and therefore should have to follow the women's dress code. It is not a lot of there's been a lot of um, very, um, I think, purposefully uh, misrepresentational information been put out by groups like the ACLU. They're not telling the truth about this. They're trying to pretend that this is somehow about dress codes. And it's not. The Supreme Court has said they are not making a decision about sex-based dress codes. That's established law. 
Um, businesses are allowed to have sex-based dress codes. We wish that was not true. That is not what this case is about. Everybody has granted that there are sex-based dress codes and that that's okay. That's already done. What this case is about is, is a man, can a man claim to be a woman? And that is his argument. I am a woman, therefore, I should be using the women's dress code, not the men's. And also, I should be using the women's bathroom. He works in a funeral home. There are women who work there who are elderly. There are mourning families coming through here. And he wants to be in the women's bathroom while people are in there, you know, having lost their husband, their child, their whatever. Like, this is just horrifying. So this is his claim. And we have written a radical feminist response to that in the Wolf Brief, which I encourage everybody to read. But that case is going to come down this spring. We are finally going to have some guidance from on high about how crazy this is going to get in the United States. So buckle in, everyone. It could be pretty <laughs> bad. It might be fine. Like, we don't know. We don't, we don't know. know. There Ruth is no conceivable uh, way. Ruth I know. Ginsburg is still She's there. still there. She's still alive. She's still sharp. And she still knows what a woman is. Yep, There's no way. She just got, I know. There's no way she doesn't know. So right. we're all just holding our breath to see what happens. And from yeah. there, the rest of it will unfold. So that's what I've got for the year. <laughs> awesome, Lear. So, th- thank you so much. And now I wanted to shift our conversation a little bit and ask you, because we're not just going into a new year. We're ringing in a new decade with 2020. And so I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about your take on what the top stories and events were going all the way back to 2010 and coming into 2020 and then looking forward in the next 10 years at 2030. What what should we as feminists be looking at and um, sort of conjuring and and adding to to bring about the change that we we'd like to see? So, you know, my view is always from a radical feminist perspective. And what I mean by that is that radical feminism is the only political philosophy that puts women at the center of the analysis. Um, What I mean, leading into the creation of radical feminism, what we what all women had before that was simply male political philosophies that took male oppression seriously. And then they took some of those tools and tried to apply them to women, which sort of works. And then it doesn't. And the difference is that, you know, we'll take America as the United States as as the example, the you know, the sort of premier moment, I would say, of the 20th century was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that was what made segregation illegal in the United States. Um, And it said that in employment and in housing and in transportation and all these things that were about public life, that um, you, you couldn't discriminate against people because of their race. Sex was thrown onto that literally as an insult. Um, And it didn't matter. It passed anyway. And then women used it as a tool. So women have used that legislation way more than men have because suddenly they realized, wait a minute, we've got this tool now that can actually get us into places like universities and into training programs and can get us mortgages and get us our own bank accounts. My mother in 1976 could not get a bank account in her own name when she divorced my father. I want everybody to understand how recent this is. This is my lifetime, right? But what that does is it says, okay, so in the ways that women's oppression is the same as men's oppression, we have some tools. And it's all about um, you know, the denial of access to the public realm. 
um, because that's the way that you know racism tends to work is you, you don't have equal access to things like the government and to banks and to universities and to public schools um, and the Civil Rights Act of 64 really tried to address that. So as far as that goes, women have made great advances. The thing about being a radical feminist is like that analysis only goes so far because when you actually put women at the center of the analysis, you see that that denial of public access is only part of the problem. Um, the reason that that's done is because every man needs to have a woman that he owns, who is his property, that he gets to control in the private realm. And things like the Civil Rights Act of 64 don't address the harms that men, to, men do to us in what's called the private realm. And what radical feminism does was it took that private realm and it said, you know what, this is political. Because women got together in small groups and they did that thing called consciousness raising and they figured it out. Like all of this happens to us and it's not just a mistake and it wasn't just one bad decision and it wasn't just one bad man. It's called rape. It's called battering. It's called child sexual abuse. It's called prostitution. These are political institutions. They're not just the private realm where just sort of natural things happen naturally. No, these all of these things are arranged so that men can own women privately. And then all that stuff that we're not allowed to participate in the in the public realm just keeps us, you know, more stuck in the private realm with the men who commit these political crimes against us. So all of that was made clear by those early radical feminists. So when you take that analysis and you look at the world over the last decade, um, women did make some really incredible gains in things like government, in things like professions, um, in terms of income equality, like bit by bit, you know, women start doing it. And that is fantastic around the world. Uh, the problem is that that that, you know, the stuff that's in the, quote, private realm that we now know is political. And this is what Andrea Dworkin named the barricade of sexual terrorism, is all of those practices where men hurt women, um, you know, and keep us subordinated. All of that, you know, the violence and the silencing and, you know, the lifelong traumas and, you know, the ways that women are just kept um, as private property. So all of that never changes. That's the problem. So mm -hmm. in my mind... Anything that actually breaks a brick in the wall of that barricade of sexual terrorism, that's where the real progress happens. The other stuff we need, like it really helps that women can get divorced in most countries, that they can retain custody of their children, that they can actually control their own money. Those were huge gains over the last century. So I don't mean to dismiss them in any way. In order for women to break out of that barricade, they need those things in place. But eventually we've got to break down that barricade. So rape, battering, incest, prostitution, all of that stuff, like that's where the real battles are, are going to be fought. So we lost and we gained. And the thing that we lost and we've lost it big time is pornography, that this is now the standard of the culture. Um, social media took over um, what back in the day would have been like hardcore porn is now essentially softcore pop culture. And the stuff that's actually happening in the porn is just, it's unbelievable. And this is what teenage girls are now facing, one by one on their own. Um, they are, you know, expected to perform body punishing, body damaging, degrading, violating, horrible things that no one should ever have to experience. And this is, you know, before they're 16 or 17. And it's just expected. And it's because the boys, you know, by age 10 are already you know, enjoying yeah. this kind of porn and it's horrifying and we need to face it. And I know it is dreadful to face it. You know, you, it's, you need a level of spiritual strength because it is, 
it's just awful stuff. I mean, it will just bleed you dry of all hope and all love and all connection. It is horrible to behold that level of sadism, but this is the world that we've got now. And it's what the pornographers did with, um, you know, the explosion of social media, all the little phones, you know, all the internet websites, every man can carry it with him in his pocket and it's now everywhere. And it's just basic social socialization now into patriarchy. So on that sense, we have lost big because the, the rape culture has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, on the positive side, uh, we have, the Nordic model, which is also called the equality model. Um, and this now is the law in, I think, nine countries around the world. And what this does is it takes prostitution out of the sort of underground and it makes it an offense against women. It's a, it's, it's a crime against humanity, essentially. Like that is recognized in the Nordic model. Um, and what it says is um, that the anyone who pimps or buys so the purchasers and, um, you know, the, the owners, essentially, um, are committing a crime. And the people who are victimized, which is mostly women and girls, but also some men and boys, anyone who's victimized is not committing a crime. They are just trying to survive. They are the victim here and they need help. They need help getting out and they need services to put their lives back together. And this has been very successful in places that it's actually been tried. It's not enough to just pass a law that says this. You actually have to put some money into it and help people who have been this traumatized. So they need access to stable housing, they need access to drug counseling, um, they need good educations. Um, so all of this you know, has to be provided to really, really help people who are coming out of that world and that level of abuse, but it can be done and it can be done very successfully. And this to me is the best hope that we've got because it takes one of the basic models of patriarchy which is to say women are commodities, men are allowed to own them and buy them. And it says, actually, no, that's wrong. These are human beings and they deserve rights, basic human rights. And we're going to do something about it as a society. So I, to me, that's like the best and the worst, right? You've got the porn taking over, but you do have a model that says, yeah, not so much. Maybe we can do something about it. So that to me was like the decade, you know, like the pornographers kept winning and and but women are fighting back. So both things are happening. Um, there's definitely been progress on other fronts as well. Like uh, this, to me, one of the worst human rights abuses against women is female genital mutilation. And across the decade, um, that was made illegal just country by country by country. Women in those countries said, we're going to make this stop. And, you know, just on the ground, educating from village to village and from house to house trying to get these practices to stop. And it's successful, you know, like if you can really get in there and talk, especially survivors can get in there and talk to young mothers, to young girls, um, and to the men too, you've got to get through to the men. A lot of them don't even know what this is. They've got no idea because it's done in secret. Um, but it, there are very, very successful attempts to get this to stop. So there's definitely progress made on that front as well. And listening to you talk about that um, female genital mutilation and the progress that's been made on a grassroots level by women going door to door and organizing in these smaller groups, that also connects me to a hope and a feeling I have about the future in terms of democracy, sure. you know, how grassroots organizing and maybe just changing the whole world, I feel, is linked to the feminist movement. Can you talk about the environmental crisis as we move into 2030 and how that's connected to the feminist movement? I see them as deeply connected. Um, the problem is, you know, we're just, we're losing. 
and I'm not going to sugarcoat this in any way. Like every single biological indicator is headed in the wrong direction. And this has been true, you know, my entire life. The, you know, my, I'm like, the, if you think of the environmental movement as starting with the publication of Silent Spring, that's essentially my lifespan. And, you know, Rachel Carson tried really hard, but um, we're losing. So, and as David Brower said so poignantly, all of our victories are temporary and all of our losses are permanent because we're talking about species extinction. I mean, every day, 200 species go extinct and all of that. We have not even slowed the rate of the destruction. Like the rate itself keeps, keeps accelerating, the rate of destruction of ecosystems of species. Mammalian evolution has come to a halt. In fact, vertebrate evolution has come to a halt because there simply isn't enough wild space anymore. So I am, I'm not, I mean, I just want to be really clear. I am never going to be the person who, um, you know, tells everybody to give up, that there's no hope and that we just need to go have a good time. I see lots of people make that argument. Oh, well, there's nothing we can do. And, you know, let's just have a party until it's over. And I, I just find that repugnant. Like, that's just not my nature. And I don't understand giving up when everything you love is at stake. Um, I also don't see a lot of reason to hope because, like I said, we're just nothing is headed in the right direction. The only good thing I can say is that I feel like we have a really good analysis about what's gone wrong. I feel like the way that feminism, and environmentalism come together, um, we're able to describe the problem in a way that nobody else seems to get. And, and that that's really crucial, that at least we understand the roots of the problem. And that is at least one hopeful thing. Like if we can understand you know, the model, like here it is, I can draw it on a piece of paper. This is what, this is what has gone wrong on this planet. We at least have some hope of pushing it back. Um, and in a very dark way, a sort of gallows humor way, I do think that the best hope we have right now is that things are getting so extreme that more and more people are forced out of denial. So every time we have one of these horrifying storms, you know, where coastlines are flooded and there's you know environmental refugees and people lose their lives and you know whether it's in new jersey or whether it's in malaysia like wherever it is people have to wake up and say okay this is bad we are changing the climate and it's not for the better um the wildfires in australia i mean that was just horrifying to watch even on television so everybody in australia i mean you just cannot be in denial anymore and that's what it's going to take people's personal lives are going to have to be affected before they're going to be willing to say, okay, so what has gone wrong and what can we do about it? Um, and that is a very grim situation because every day that goes by is one less day that we have to turn this around. But I am not without hope. I still think we can sequester the carbon and I still think that humans can pull back from you know, this sort of massive drawdown and overshoot that we've been on for 10,000 years, which is intimately yeah. linked to patriarchy. And that's where the feminism comes in. But I still think it's possible. I don't I don't think we've completely we're completely past the tipping point. But I also don't care because even if we are, we have to fight. I mean, that's really always my main message. It's and this is an Andrew Dworkin quote. I found it was better to fight always, no matter what. Huh. Yeah. Wow, what a wonderful note to end on, Lier. Thank you so much for sharing your overview of the past uh, 10 years and then also just this past year and going into 2020. Very insightful. And um, I look forward to seeing you in Seattle. Yeah, it'll be fun.
That was my guest, Lear Keith, feminist author and activist living on the West Coast. Lear was reflecting on the top stories and events of 2019, and also looking back on the past decade and into our future towards 2030. She is going to be the moderator of the upcoming talk, Fighting the New Misogyny, a Feminist Critique of Gender Identity, at the Seattle Public Library on February 1st. The featured speakers at that event are Megan Murphy, Saba Malik, and Kara Dansky. WLRN will be live streaming the talk and surrounding ambience and occurrences, trans activist disruptions and shenanigans to our Facebook page on the ground in Seattle, February 1st. So look for that. And thank you for listening to WLRN. I'm Thistle Pedersen.